Evan, go. Okay, well, welcome this morning as we continue with this wonderful class of essentials, the essentials of the faith. And I do want to give credit to where credit is due. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is the one who receives the credit, but he receives credit through the means through which he works. And as we were several months ago discussing the classes that we would share during School of the Word, uh, I think it was Matt Mason who said, you know, we really need a, an essentials class, a class that would present just those things that are so significant to the faith that those are the things that we want to share at least for several weeks, those foundational building blocks. So really thanks to Matt Mason for this series and for allowing some of us to share with him because he's the kind of guy who likes to scoop up everything unto himself and never share, but this time he actually had to share. Some of us have actually been shut out of being able to share things because Matt is so selfish. Oh, no. To the contrary, you see that he has wonderfully shared his time uh, of giving us, giving me and Bill and others. Takes a chance when he allows me to come in here and speak on his behalf. I know that. So I did want to say thank you to Maddie, man. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much. Father, what a delight. But Father, what a responsibility, a weightiness, a soberness. to receive your word and to share your word. Father, so often we take this lightly and glibly. And yet, Father, there is not a more glorified, weighty work than to be used by you in the transmission of your word through the way we live what we say, how we say it, what we share from the Scripture. And Father, not only is this weighty to share, but it is also massively weighty in receiving, in believing, in applying. Father, for your glory, your honor, the integrity, the validation of your name, You have chosen to connect it and to place it centrally in us as your vessels through whom you proclaim the excellencies of your grace. Father, may we daily grow in appreciation, understanding, application of this greatest work Emmanuel, God with us, in us. Father, this morning as we continue this class of essentials, Father, once again, you have given us the opportunity but also the challenge to in a very short piece of time to speak about you, the infinite God, in 45 minutes. Father, we couldn't do it in a lifetime, in eternity. So, Father, we pray that the sketch, the minutiae, 
the glimpse that will be shared this morning. Father, will be received by us, and as you plant these seeds in our hearts, would you grow them into a great harvest of revelation, of understanding, of living reality. Thank you for this. We trust you to do it because you said it was your will. So, Father, we wait knowing, expectingly, that you will do it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This morning, as we continue the Essentials class, we're going to be speaking, as I've already mentioned to you in prayer, the person and work of the Holy Spirit, which, like the person and work of Christ or the person of God, is so massive that we couldn't do it in eternity. But at least you'll receive this morning, hopefully, a thumbnail revelation and sketch that the Holy Spirit will use in our lives to do a much deeper work. And remember, as we go through these classes, this is never to be understood as purely an academic exercise. I just need to know more about God. That is true. But the knowledge that we are gaining, the information that we are hearing, that we take in, is for one great and grand purpose, and that is that God will use this revelation through teaching and through knowledge to be continuing to conform us into the image of his son. So all of this is specifically not to be stored away in a library of our minds, in a book, so to speak, on a shelf to say, we have that down. But it is to come forth in a great and living way so the church, the world, and the creation may see in us. They may see the grandeur and the greatness of our God. So this morning, let's keep that in mind as we proceed to do that which is impossible, to talk a little bit, even a little bit, about the person and work of the Holy Spirit. So first of all, let's talk about the person of the Spirit. And as Matt said last week, and I may repeat some of these things from time to time in this, undergirding the work of the Spirit is the person of the Spirit because of who he is. The what he does is possible, and the what he does is effective. So first of all, we always deal with who God is in his person, explaining as best we can the grandeur of his person, the grandeur of his purpose, and then the application of that person and purpose in our lives. So we begin with the person. If you remember in your Bible, we're introduced to the Holy Spirit in the very opening pages of the Bible. I mean, it doesn't take but a few words in the first two verses of Genesis when we are introduced to the Trinity. And so you remember what the Word says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God moved, hovered, vibrated, It's a word which has all those connotations. He hovered, he vibrated, he moved upon the waters. Now, it doesn't matter where the waters came from, did God do this, you know. What is significant to know in these verses is this. We are immediately, immediately introduced to all three persons of the Trinity. 
And this morning we specify that revelation as it occurs in the spirit. And so when we look at this word in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2 specifically, where it says, and the spirit of God, we immediately learn the same three things about the spirit that we learned last week about the person of Christ that we see here and it is enumerated in John 1, 1. And that's this. First of all, the Holy Spirit. He is with God. Secondly, he is distinct from God. And thirdly, he is God. Now, those are the same three things, the same three truths that we learn about the Word of God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1.1, remember, giving the theological explanation and, and enlargement of Genesis 1.1, in the beginning God, in the beginning was the Word. And so you see where John is coming from. He's taking that in the beginning and enlarging it to show us that it's just not something that is happening, but there is a huge revelation in creation, a massive revelation in creation of who this great God of ours is. And he wants to declare himself, and how does he do it? He creates, not out of a need, but out of desire to share himself with his creation, especially through his people. So these are three truths that we need to make sure that we initially and always have under our belt concerning Christ and concerning the Holy Spirit and concerning God the Father. Now these are the same three truths, as I said, we learned about the Son. As with Christ, the most important truth about the Spirit is that he is as divine as the Father and the Son. Let us not think of the Spirit as a second-class person. The Spirit is as divine as God is. The Spirit is as divine as the Son is. He is what we call the third, and I put it in quotes, the third person of the Trinity and member of the Trinity. Now, now, we don't say third because he's third in line and all of that. It's just a way of expressing not only the personhood of God, but the role of God or the relationship within God. So we always begin with God, God the Father, and there are reasons for that that we don't have time to go into today. The Spirit of God is fully, equally, eternally and simultaneously God within himself but not by himself. Now that's something, if we don't grab anything else this morning, we need to have under our belt. Concerning each person, I could put the father and I could put the son in that comment. So what do we say about any of the persons of the Trinity, but especially this morning, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God is fully, completely, equally, not one person greater than the other, eternally. It's always been like this. And simultaneously, God within himself, but not by himself. Now, how can that be? How can one person of three be absolutely fully God within himself and still the other two be fully God within themselves. How can that be? It can't be in the natural and according to our normal understanding. Why is this a revelation? I think this is the most profound apologetic, if you would, of the existence and the reality of that our God is God. And if you want the most profound and the most 
glorious revelation as you are speaking with someone concerning is Christianity correct and whatever, there's a lot of apologetics. But I don't think you get deeper than this because here is an understanding of God that simply doesn't make sense to us, cannot be explored mentally and intellectually in a way that we arrive at an understanding. It leaves too many holes and gaps and questions. So how could a person or people create a theology that people and a person cannot understand and explain? It can't happen. That which man can create, others can understand. This is inexplicable. Why? Because you see, people did not create this theology. This understanding is a revelation of the truth of who God is. So this is significant about the person of the Holy Spirit because so often as believers, we want to elevate God the Father and God the Son and kind of not bring in the Holy Spirit in the same way. It's almost like he's a stepchild, kind of, I'm trying to catch up, I'm trying to catch up, and maybe one day I can catch up to them. Well, the other problem is we take the Holy Spirit and make him everything, and the Father and the Son are trying to catch up, and they're trying to catch up with the Spirit. So remember the understanding. Fully equally, eternally, and simultaneously, God within himself, but not by himself. Now, as we've seen, the Spirit makes his appearance in the Old Testament. You may have noticed that in Genesis 1, verse 2. And his purpose is to minister the purpose and will of God among his people. He is God's presence with his people. God present with his people is the Spirit of God in the Old Testament, as we will see also in the new. In the Old Testament, he is referred to as my spirit 14 times, the spirit of God 14 times, the spirit of the Lord 24 times. And by the way, when it says the spirit of the Lord, most of the time it's the spirit of Yahweh. The Holy Spirit three times and his spirit seven times. Now that is not even to say that the word spirit by itself is all over the place in the Old Testament. But that at least gives you a thumbnail description that the person and work of the Holy Spirit just did not come on the scene in the New Testament. And it's amazing sometimes what we think. You know, we sometimes think that when Jesus was born, that was the beginning of the Son. Or when the Holy Spirit was given, that's the beginning of the Spirit. This is God. He always has been. He always will be. And so his appearance in all three persons is from Genesis 1-1 all the way through to the end of Revelation 22. He permeates the entire Word of God, emphasizing certain aspects of his personhood and his work at various times. But you see, it is until we get to the New Testament that the divinity and work of the Spirit is most clearly documented or demonstrated. From Matthew 1-18 all the way through, Revelation 22, when we get to the New Testament, all of a sudden, that which we have seen, not only in the Spirit, but also the Son, as glimpses and shadows and intimations and implicit statements, is all of a sudden on the pages of the New Testament, comes forth in bold, magnificent reality and color and demonstration. 
all of a sudden, everything changes when we get to the New Testament. His divinity, you remember, is stated all over the place in the New Testament. But if you were to read Acts chapter 5, verses 3 and 4, you remember Ananias and Sapphira. And the church is being given money, and people are contributing to the ministry. And Ananias and Sapphira, you remember, have sold a piece of land, let's say for $100,000. And so Ananias first, as the husband, comes forth, and he gives to Peter. He says, here's the money from the land, $75,000. Now, he's kept twenty-five. And Peter says, by revelation, how did Peter know this? He didn't go to the bank with Ananias. Peter says, hey, Ananias, you sold this for 100000 Give me a little liberty here, right? You sold this for 100 grand. You're giving in 75. Now, by giving me 75, what you're telling me is that this is what you sold the land for. Now, where's the 25,000? He said, you could have kept that if you wanted to. There was no obligation for you to give the whole 100, but you're lying. He said, you lied to the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 5, he says, you have not lied to man, but you've lied to God. I'm sorry, verse 4, you've lied to God. So immediately, the lying that Peter accuses Ananias of to the Holy Spirit, then at the end of it, he says, you've not lied to men, but you've lied to God. You see, these apostles understood that the person of the Holy Spirit is God himself with us. So that deals a little bit about the person of the Holy Spirit. May we be very, very, very careful not to either elevate or diminish any of the persons of God. We must not elevate the Father over the Son and the Spirit. We must not elevate the Son over the Father or the Spirit. And we must not elevate the Spirit over the Father or the Son. Because in doing so, we will mar the revelation of who God is. Each one of them, distinct in in roles only and in relationship within the community of God. But all three, as we said, is God or God within, is God within himself, but not alone. And all three comprise the being, the one being who is our God. Now, having said that, and the basis of everything that the Holy Spirit does in carrying out the purpose of God is it his divinity. Now his ability has been established as we saw last week in Matt's class. The cross is effective only because Jesus is the Son of God, not because he dies. He is the Son of God. How do we know he's the Son of God? Well, you said it. That's not how we know it. We know it because God raised him from the dead. That's the proof, the quintessential proof that everything he said, everything he did is declaring himself as the son of God. Therefore, it causes everything about him to be true. This is the same thing for the spirit. Let's talk a little bit about the work of the spirit. The work of God's spirit has the same purpose of the work of the son. Again, we get confused as believers sometimes. You see, we think Jesus came to redeem us through his death and resurrection. Is that true? Did Jesus come to redeem us through his death and resurrection? Isn't that true? Yes. Well, that's true. What does the Spirit do? The Spirit does the same thing except differently. He literally brings 
applies, makes real what was accomplished by God the Son at the cross and in the resurrection, he brings it to us. You see, if the Spirit does not do that, it's not that the work of Jesus was efficacious in and of itself, but I don't get anything out of it. You see, all of this was done so God's glory could be demonstrated in us. The purpose of God is that in his people he would be glorified. He doesn't do this just to do it and bring us alongside of himself later. He does this totally and completely with us in mind. And that doesn't mean that we are so significant in and of ourselves, but we are major significant as God has attached his significance to our calling in Christ to be the vessels of his glory. So I am not significant because I am a human being. I am significant because God has determined that in me and in you, his glory would be demonstrated. Is that right? So we understand significance two different ways. Unilateral and intrinsic significance? No. Significance tied in with the glory of God and the purpose of God and in the foreknowledge and the work of God. There ain't nothing more significant than the people of God to God. So the work of the Spirit is the same purpose of the work of the Son. What is that? What is the work of God the the Son and God the Spirit? One work. Glorify God. How? In the salvation, sanctification, in his people. You see, the glory of God is in itself significant and essential and not needing anything else. But God has chosen that his glory would be shared in us. This is a choice that God has made. Remembering that the Father's glory is displayed through the Son. The Spirit's work is to point to and reveal the Son so that the Father will be glorified. Let's turn to John chapter 17. Remember John, Jesus is praying in this prayer in chapter 17 of John. And he begins by speaking to God concerning the most essential essential reason why he is about to go to the cross. Now what do we say? The Father's glory is displayed through the Son, in and through the Son, and by the Son. I could use a lot of different preparations there, uh, prepositions there, preparations. The Spirit's work is to do, to take that which the Son has done and point us to the Son, and thereby the Father is glorified. So listen to these words that Jesus said for his purpose on earth. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son in order that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. There's so much here, but we won't talk about it. And this is eternal life that they may know you personal, that personal knowledge and intimacy. The only true God in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me with your own presence, with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus' purpose was to come to glorify the Father. And now it's the Holy Spirit who takes that glory that Jesus has accomplished in the cross and the resurrection and begin to apply that glory in our lives, causing the revelation of the Son 
to be manifested in us. So as the revelation of God the Son is being manifested in us, God the Father is being glorified, you see, because the Son always points to the Father. The Holy Spirit always points to the Son. The Son always points to the Father. And this is the essential work of the Holy Spirit, to bring glory to the Father by glorifying the Son in us. And as the Son is manifested and glorified in us, the Father is receiving the glory. You see how it travels. You see how it travels. Now, in the Old Testament, you see, you remember, the the Holy Spirit was with the people of God, ministering the glory of God through men as he came upon them to proclaim God's word. You may remember some of these words. Remember in Judges 14, concerning that big, strong guy? What's his name? Samson. By the way, I'm not sure Samson had huge muscles. The reason for his strength was not that he worked out in the gym every day, benching 10,000 pounds, but the reason for his strength is this. And the Spirit of the Lord came or rushed upon him in power so that he tore the line apart with his bare hands. The power of Samson was not in his biceps. The power of Samson was in the presence and work of the Spirit of God as the Spirit of God rushed upon him, fell upon him, came upon him, and empowered this probably normal-looking guy to rip a lion apart. So when the lion is ripped apart by this normal-looking guy, everybody can say, that is amazing. Something is going on. But if the guy looked twice as big as Arnold Schwarzenegger and he tears up a lion, eh, well, I understand that. Look at the size of the man. See, we have it. We have to be careful of Hollywood. You know, the big old guy like that coming on out and I tear up a lion. What is that? He's probably a little skinny guy like me coming up. And then you go, hey, what's happening here? Well, you see, that says something about my relationship and our relationship and need to God. We don't have any essential power unless the Holy Spirit comes and manifests himself in us and rushes through us. Amen? We ain't got no power except to sin. Oh, I have all the power in the world to sin, but that's all the power I have. I don't have any power to do anything else intrinsically in me by nature, except the sin, Gloria. That's all I have. That's all you have. Oh, but to let the Holy Spirit come upon us. Let him indwell us and let him move himself, move in us by his power. Then you watch what God's going to do. You see, then is the Son glorified and manifested. You see, but in the New Testament, the Old Testament he was with, but in the New Testament, the work and presence of God by his Spirit changed. I need to move along. He changed positions from without to within. And beginning with the incarnation, you know what that means? Jesus being conceived in Mary. That's when the incarnation began. Jesus being conceived in this woman, Mary. The beginning of the incarnation, but beginning with the incarnation, culminating in the cross and resurrection of Jesus and continuing with Pentecost until the Lord Jesus returns. This is the work of the Holy Spirit in us today in the New Testament. So therefore, in order to examine the work of the Spirit in the New Testament, we must begin with his work during the incarnation, and I'll go through this very quickly, if I can. Now, if I were to take Bill Treby's leaning and leading, I would go for the next four hours. But I'm not going to do that, Bill. I'm going to control myself 
and only take three hours, brother. Remember last week when Matt talked about the work of Christ? How many of you were here last week? Sorry, how many of you were not here last week? Get these tapes. Get these CDs, whatever they're called. Get them. Get them. Get them. Especially the one when Matt did the sovereignty of God. If you weren't here for that, or if you were, get that CD. I think it's one of the most incredible works of revelation that I've ever heard on the sovereignty of God that our Matt Mason, by the Holy Spirit, gave to us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's incredible. All these other teachers notwithstanding, I love Mark Deverin, Mike Bullmore, but I don't think they can top that because God gave it to you. Oh, no, no, I'm ki- not kidding. That's, that's the truth. I really mean that. Sometimes when I say these things, people think I'm, no, no, some things I really do mean. <laughs> but you remember when he talked about the, the magnificence and the greatness and the glory of the work of Jesus. You know, you, you, we ought to be asking, how could he do that? How could he do what he did, say what he said, and die like he did? How could he die like he died, say what he said, and do what he did? How can that happen? Well, the answer is very simple. It happened only by the power of the Spirit. Well, Jesus is divine. He's the Son of God. Yes, he is. But you see, he has emptied himself. Not of his divine prerogatives and power, but he cannot, because he cannot disconnect himself from being the Son of God. But he has emptied himself of the dependence upon or the use of those powers to come and live as a man completely, totally, continually upon the presence of, and power of the Holy Spirit. So when we look at the life of Jesus, what we are seeing is the exercise of two enormous powers. The power of the Son of God not to use his power and the power of the Holy Spirit through this man who will not use his power but depend on the power of the Holy Spirit. Two enormous revelations about the humility and submission of the Son to the Father's will and of the Holy Spirit to the will of the Father and the Son. Submission, humility, enormous. It's the biggest issue that we see here is the humility as expressed in the submission, therefore obedience of the Son and now of the Holy Spirit. But that's, again, another day. There's so much to talk about, isn't there? The answer is this, by the power of the Spirit. Bruce Ware tells us this, that Jesus lived his life resisted temptation, performed his miracles, and in all ways accomplished what the Father sent him to do through the agency of the Spirit's anointing. The Spirit then stands behind the obedience and miraculous power of Christ. By the way, that little booklet, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware, if I were to recommend a few books to everybody that I believe are the crux of everything that you need to learn, I would say, Buy that little book. It's a small book. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit by Bruce Ware. I don't know whether in one volume, and I've read a few books about the Trinity, that you will ever get such a succinct and wonderful revelation of the person of God and the work of God within the Trinity. It is an incredible work. So I recommend spend a few dollars, get that, and look what God has to 
will have to show to you as you read through that. Jesus' incarnation is the work of the Spirit. Listen to this, Matthew 1.18. Now, the birth of Jesus took place this way. This is how Jesus got here, is what Matthew tells us. You want to know what happened? Here's what happened. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be child with child from the Holy Spirit. Now, that's just one. We could go to Luke. But you see, the birth of Jesus was because the Holy Spirit came upon Mary and impregnated Mary. So the Holy Spirit is there immediately in the beginning and the initiator of the incarnation. Jesus was anointed and empowered for ministry. How? By the Spirit. Luke 3, 21, 22. You remember Jesus was baptized. He came out to the Jordan. John the Baptist was out throwing, putting people in the water for repentance. And Jesus was baptized. And while he was praying, heaven was opened. And the Holy Spirit descended upon him in bodily form like a dove. Jesus had the Holy Spirit before he ever got out there. But he was empowered or inaugurated for ministry by the anointing presence of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't step out into public ministry at all until he is imbued with power from on high from the Holy Spirit. You see, because he's a man who is not going to do anything of his own authority and with the understanding of his own abilities. He's going to do whatever it is he's going to do by the leading and empowerment of the Spirit of God. He could have done it differently. But remember, he chose because of his divine prerogatives, and he's the only one who has the ability to make this kind of a choice. The only ability we have is to yield ourselves to God. We cannot take up the mantle of God on our own, which he could have done, but which he refused to do. Jesus began the ministry. I'm sorry, he just confronted and overcame all of Satan's temptations. How? By the power of the Spirit. This should be very instructive to us concerning our daily living. Listen to what happened when Jesus went into the wilderness by, in Luke. First of all, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days and being tempted by the devil. You see, Jesus began his ministry by the Spirit. And I think I'm just repeating myself there. Now, it's instructive. Why did Jesus get, how did Jesus get himself being tempted? He was led by the Spirit into the very place of temptation so he As a man without sin, as us and for us, as us and for us, could do what Adam failed to do. When Adam was tempted, he gave in. When Jesus was tempted, he stomped the head of the tempter with the word of God. Now, that should be instructive to us. Holy Spirit in me. The weapon of righteousness, the two-edged sword, the word of God. And as it were, he said, Satan, come on, I'm ready for you. And watch what a man imbued with the anointing power of the Holy Spirit, instructed in the word of God, can do to you and your temptation. We need to learn something about this. My life, we need to be better equipped and knowing that we can do the same thing as he did Because the Holy Spirit who did it in Jesus now lives where? In me. So don't be kicked around by temptation and Satan and sin. Don't do it. Lean upon the Holy Spirit. Call upon him. Take the word of God. If you don't know it, learn it. Read it. Study it. And let us be a people who live holy before our God in great victory. 
This is a teaching time. My wife remembers, it reminds me, it's not a preaching time. Jesus began the ministry by the power of the Spirit. He came out of the wilderness. He came out. Look, he didn't come out pumped up. Hey, man, I did it. I'm ready to do the work. He came out as a humble servant of God. He came out being filled with the Spirit. He didn't come out pumped up in what he did. He came out pumped up in what God did in and through him. Can we learn a lesson? Can I learn a lesson about that? about what God does in me and through me. Can I learn a lesson not to be pumped up, but to give unequivocally the glory to God because of the Holy Spirit is the one who is manifesting the life of Christ in me and through me through all of this that's happening and through you too. Jesus announced that his ministry was by the power of the Spirit. You remember this sermon? When he came to Capernaum, he opened the scroll. They sat around. Jesus stood up. Hey, everybody's listening. He's been in ministry about a year and a half. John 1, 1 to 1, 4 is, uh, uh, has already happened by the time we get to this ministry in Luke 4. You know, he doesn't quite say that, but that's what's happening. So they have a lot of things that they've heard and, and seen about this man and the curse. So he's there, and he stands up in every ear. You know, let's hear what he's going to say. And he says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. Let us learn. He's anointed me. Has he anointed you? Yes. To do the same thing that Jesus did. Not concerning the redemption of his people, but concerning the manifestation and the spreading out and the living of the gospel. He's called us to do the same thing. He has anointed me to do what? To proclaim the gospel to the poor. That's our call. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and the recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And remember, he closed the scrolls, and everybody's listening for the homily, for the sermon about the word. And he stands there, and he boldly says, in your hearing, this word is made manifest, or it's completed. Like, what? That says about the Messiah. That statement is about the Messiah from Isaiah. Who are you that you're saying you're that man? He says it's being fulfilled right in front of your eyes. I am the one that Isaiah is talking about. You see, no wonder they sat there with their mouths open. No wonder they were. What in the world is he saying? Jesus ministered by the Spirit. You know, it's, 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 it's instructive to note that I think I'm right here. You won't find a reference in Jesus' ministry from Jesus concerning the Spirit's work in him in the ministry, except one or two places. He doesn't say, I'm doing this by the Spirit, I'm doing this by the Spirit, I'm doing this by the Spirit. He doesn't talk like that. See, that doesn't get revealed to us. Why? Because the Spirit is not looking for the approbation. The Spirit is behind the scenes, if you would, doing the work. He's not looking for the attention. He's putting all attention to someone else. And Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28, but if it is by the Spirit that I cast out demons, why does he even say that? Because remember, he'd been accused of casting out demons by Beelzebub. And he says, look, I'm not casting them out by Beelzebub. I'm casting them out by the Spirit. He's not, you know, the Spirit is not being lauded here or let me just tell you it's the holy spirit who is doing this it's not wrong for us to do that but it's not what jesus is doing he's being as it were not forced but he is being put in a situation where he wants to say here's what's happening you cast out you're telling me you're telling them that i'm casting out by beelzebub you know by the prince of demons i'm not i'm doing it by the holy spirit 
I'm not doing it on my own authority even. I'm doing it by his authority. Jesus endured the cross by the Spirit. Listen to these great words from Hebrews 9, 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, he offered himself, how? By the empowering work of the Spirit to go to the cross and to endure the cross. So in summary, all that Jesus did was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now let me quickly uh, go through the work of the Spirit in us. And you'll note that he will do in us what he did in Jesus, except for redemption, except for purifying Jesus of sin and so on. But the work of the ministry will be the same in those other categories. The work of the ministry of the Spirit in Jesus continues in the church so that by the Spirit, Jesus' glory is being manifested in us. As the Spirit glorifies Jesus, Jesus is glorifying the Father. You remember, if you would, the divine pecking order. Spirit, Son, Father. Now, if you were to read Ezekiel 36, 24 to 27, and I won't read that this morning, in the passage we see that by the Spirit, there are several things. Ezekiel is giving this prophecy, giving this prophecy, remember, to Israel as they are in the Babylonian captivity. They're in Babylon. They've just been shipped over in 605, and everybody, all these Jews over there now, in 586, the destruction of Jerusalem has occurred, and Ezekiel is at the riverside, and he's given this revelation, and he begins to speak forth what we see in Ezekiel, and the Lord is saying, look, it looks like it's all over. Israel's no more. Everything is like that when they were saying essentially, what about your promises? What about Abraham? And Ezekiel said, there's coming a day. There's coming a day that my spirit won't be with my people, but my spirit is going to be within my people. And so in verse 24, he says they are called. He says, I'm going to call you from out of the nations. Remember, we are the called. This is the work of the spirit. We're called into Christ by the Holy Spirit. We are cleansed. He says, I'm going to wash you. I'm going to wash you in Ezekiel. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to sprinkle water on you. It's a work of washing, of purifying. Remember in verse 26, he says, I'm going to give you a new heart, the old stony heart. I'm going to give you a new heart of flesh. I'm going to change your heart and completely make it new so you can receive the things of God. I'm going to give you God's spirit. I'm going to put my spirit, the Lord says, in you. The Holy Spirit now will not be with us, but he will be in us with us. You get it? He's with us, but he's with us by being where? In us, with us. And then he says, I'm going to be empowered by the Spirit to obey God. Because all of this is not effective and doesn't bring forth the glory of God until it results in our obedience. Our obedience is the crucial revelation externally of what is happening crucially internally. And the two must be in somewhat connected. Sometimes I know, at least in my life, my obedience far out, you know, follows, uh, far is behind some of the things that I know about. Having placed us into Christ, remember we've been placed into Christ by the Spirit. The word, the old word baptizo means to be placed into Christ. The Spirit continues the work of pointing or testifying of Jesus by sanctifying us. We're saved by the Spirit and now we're being sanctified or matured by the Spirit. 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face. How many? We what? How many? All. Everyone in Christ. We all 
with unveiled face. In other words, the veil has been removed. We can now see. Beholding the glory of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, or being transformed into the same image. You remember in image, Genesis 1.26, let us make them in our image, the same image, from one degree of glory to another. How does this happen? From this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. God's Spirit is transforming us. So what? Sanctification is the work of the Spirit, conforming us to the image of God's Son, as he transforms our minds, our thoughts, desires, motives, and attitudes by the washing of the word so that we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's what's happening in me and in you. Now, it occurs in all kinds of ways, which we obviously do not have any time for today. But the central work of the Spirit in saving me, why did the Spirit save me? The Spirit didn't save me because I needed to be saved. The Spirit saved me specifically for sanctifying me, for sanctifying you, so that on that great day as we stand before the Lord, we may be able to stand before him as his vessels of honor in whom and through whom and with whom he declared his glory by the work of the Spirit. You see, all of it is from God, about God, and for God. This whole thing is God. From beginning to end, we just in the middle of it, being used as his primary vessels of his will. You see, the Spirit's main goal in our sanctification is to reproduce in us God's own love for his Son. Most startling, I think one of the most startling verses in the entire Testament is when Jesus in John 17, 26 said, Father, would you cause the love that you have for me? Is there a greater love between the Father and the Son? Is there a greater love anywhere? Would you cause that same love, the love that you have for me, would you cause it to be in and for the church? What does that say? And and this blows me away. I, I can't get a handle on it. All I can do is intellectually accept the doctrine. God loves us with the same passion and intensity and completeness as he loves his own son. And he considers us to be as much a part of himself as he does his own son. The next time you're feeling down, you're feeling unloved, you're feeling rejected, stomp the head of that temptation and run to your Bible and read John 17, 26, And flush out the floaties by declaring to yourself the truth of what you see in this verse. Okay? The Spirit of God conforms us to the love of God. Remember in Galatians 5, 22, 23. For the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of what? The Spirit. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Joy. That's it. That's the fruit of the Spirit. Well, what does the fruit of the Spirit look like? I'm sorry, fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, sorry. Love. The fruit of the Spirit is love. That's it. That's the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like? Joy. Come on. Peace. Patience. What? Kindness. Goodness. Faithfulness. Gentleness. And self-control. The fruit of the Spirit is love. What does love look like? Look at the rest of the words. 
That's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. This is what God is doing preeminently in us. So you see that the love that God has within himself among the members of the Trinity, the joy that God has within himself about himself, satisfaction that God experiences within himself about himself, the contentment, the peace that God has within himself about himself may be manifested in us so that when the world sees us, the unity, the love, and all the rest that is manifested, they may see who God is in himself, about himself. That's great. Somebody should have said, hallelujah, praise God. Somebody should have yelled on that one. You see, that's what's happening in us. There's no greater call. It's an incredible revelation. It's an incredible work. It's an astounding work. No wonder the devil is so preoccupied with opposing. Spirit is given to us as our helper and our teacher. Listen to these words from John 14, verse 26. Jesus speaking to the disciples concerning the work of the Holy Spirit. Before he goes to the cross, he's telling them this. He says, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, that word helper, counselor, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I have said. He's going to be helping. Our helper, he reveals sin in us, makes us aware of temptation, leads us daily, enables us to speak to God in prayer, protects, provides, encourages in obedience, worship, and so, so much more. He's our helper. He's our counselor. And he certainly does this through other agencies in the, world, in the church. But primarily, he himself is our helper and our counselor. And ladies, you have, as it were, the greatest role that God can give to you because you are called the helper, the help of the husband. And I will make for him, Genesis 2.18, a helper. You have, as it were, the place of the Holy Spirit in your husband's life to be that helper. Don't fall for the lies of Satan to ever think that you were being demeaned or left out. The Holy Spirit doesn't think that way. Don't you? You had the greatest role that God could give to a woman. And husband, you had the greatest role God could give to you as a man. For you are as Christ to the church. And as Jesus depended upon and looked to the Holy Spirit and then made the decisions of obedience to follow that helping work, look at what has happened. What a dynamic in marriage especially. As our teacher, he guides us into all truth. Remember in verse 14, 26, he's going to say, all that I have said, the word of God. By opening the meaning and the truth of God's word, empowering us to obey it. But you know what? In order for him to open in this meaning, what do we have to do? We have to do what? Open it and do what? Read, study, meditate, memorize. This should be the primary material that we are reading every day. This should be the primary material we're reading every day. This should be the beginning 
and the most foundational thing that we do during the day as far as reading is concerned, our Bibles. The Holy Spirit equips us for ministry. Don't have time to look at these, but these verses of these four places uh, references are talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And we say gifts, we don't mean just the charismatic gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, although we do include those, but such an enormous more, a numbering more, the empowerment of the Spirit. In conclusion, let me conclude this way with Paul's prayer. And listen to what the apostle says in Ephesians 3, verse 14, following. For this reason... He's talking about the work of the gospel. I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant to you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. Why? 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 So that... So that, in order that, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That in you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, length, the height, the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that he may be filled with all the fullness of God. The work of the Holy Spirit. Let's be a people who go after, desire, clamor for, and never are tired of asking for more and more and more anointing. Thank you.